Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. You know what you done there? You told my story. You told my whole story right there, right there. One time I told you I was gonna make you somebody, that's what you done for me. You made me somebody they gonna remember. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. We have a special guest on today, Pauline Kale. Now, this is where you insert a record scratch because she's dead. Whoa, whoa, what? <laughs> <laughs> yep, we have Pauline Kell's ghost on today to talk about her favorite 1960s movie, Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> by Arthur Penn from 1967. Yeah, it's sort of the classic example of a film critic having a huge effect on the popularity and distribution of a movie because of their writing about it. Her essay for The New Yorker in 1967 about Bonnie and Clyde is uh, infamous for really uh, causing people to reconsider the quality of this uh, sort of super violent movie that uh, seemed to just appeal to the kids and their and their baser instincts and and you know she uh, she called it art and really got this uh, a wider audience for it like a, a much wider audience for it Jack Warner, the producer, you know, the studio head of Warner Brothers, hated this movie. And when it first got released, he just released it in a few theaters and was like, oh, well, I don't, I don't have any faith in this thing. We'll, we'll let it play in a few screens and then, uh, then it'll disappear. No big deal. As well known as Bonnie and Clyde is, it wasn't a particularly expensive movie. It was, uh, you know, pretty cheap. It was, it was inspired by French New Wave and, and was kind of made on the cheap. Warren Beatty had a huge hand in, in getting it produced. You know, it was a labor of love for him. And, and Warner Brothers, you know, finally, you know, agreed to like, you know, a fraction of the budget that they were asking for saying, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll pay for this thing. And, uh, you know, it got made and, and finally released in 1967. And it upset a lot of people, this movie. But maybe here's where we get into Pauline Kale a little bit. Well, but real quick, you said you used to teach this movie, right? I did, yeah. I, where? I, How? I, Why? Uh, <laughs> I taught an American cinema class, the University of Maine in Augusta. And this is, it's an important movie. It really changed the way movies were made in Hollywood. It, the new Hollywood, really. You know, this this sort of golden age of Hollywood that after the fall of the, the studio system, where uh, you know people like Scorsese and Coppola and George Lucas and all those people were sort of saved Hollywood and were making all these interesting, gritty American movies that were kind of inspired by what was happening in Europe. Not, not quite a decade after the French and Italians and uh, pretty much everywhere else in America was making really interesting stuff. And uh, these film school brats came along and, and uh, because they saw that the Bonnie and Clyde really appealed to a huge number of people, they took the uh, you know, made on the fly, just, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a tricky movie because you watch it now and it, it doesn't feel like an art movie. I mean, I think it feels more like a, a B movie, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that Roger Corman and 
Crown International and all those B-movie uh, companies started making imitations of this thing and, and sort of that became the, the standard. But I've talked about this movie a lot and it's a movie of historic importance, but I'm not sure it's a movie that it's that easy to see how groundbreaking it was watching it in 2020. It sort of plays like uh, a cheap, sensation-heavy uh, B-movie, really. I want to read a couple of quotes from reviews about this movie before we get into Pauline Kael's take on it. So uh, Dave Kaufman for Variety called it, quote, inept, bumbling, moronic types. He uh, hated the directing style. He liked Faye Dunaway, but he hated everyone else. And he called them clown more clowns than baddies as gang members. Bosley uh, Crowther's uh, New York Times review Famously called it a, a cheap piece of bald-faced slapstick comedy that treats the hideous depredations of that sleazy moronic pair as though they were uh, as full of fun and frolic as the jazz age cut-ups in thoroughly modern Millie. So he absolutely hated it. He thought the whole thing was way too violent and so violent that he thought that it would turn people violent by watching this, essentially, uh, and and really freaked out about the the on-screen violence um he said the quote this blending of farce with brutal killings is as pointless as it is lacking in taste time has called it a strange and purposeless mingling of fact and claptrap that teeters uneasily on the brink of burlesque and I, you know i kind of miss reviews like this quite frankly <laughs> <laughs> agree with it or not um loving i'm loving all these takedowns and then, uh, and then we get to Pauline Kael, and she loved this movie. She actually was a staff critic at McCall's, I think. They were they were kind of fed up with her. She was a little too opinionated and not uh, you know not as middle of the road as as a magazine like McCall's would want. And so she, you know, as as her parting gesture, she wrote this you know fifteen page essay on on Bonnie and Clyde, this movie that she had seen after its release. I think that was generally her style. She would. Uh, she wasn't one of these critics who would go to to a pre-screening and then you know have a review before the movie came out. She'd like to go and and watch the movie with an audience and start a discussion. Her critical pieces were not really this this sort of like should should you go see this movie or shouldn't you go see this movie? I mean there was definitely that aspect to it, but it was more think pieces on like what this movie means and how to, how do we watch this movie? But McCall's didn't want this 15-page Bonnie and Clyde article, so she shopped it around and, and New Yorker eventually ran it. It was a sensation. Yeah, and so I mean we we're not going to make you read the 15-page essay before you listen to this episode because that would be slightly wild, but I would say that you either probably have read this already because this is maybe arguably her most famous review. Or maybe second most, now that I think about it. But we are going to essentially play Pauline Kael for you. <laughs> and we're going to give you some, some choice quotes, and we're going to explain her side of the story as if she her ghost were here with us. So basically, I mean, she, she starts off this review, and don't worry again, I'm not going to read all 15 pages, but she starts off this review by saying that this was the most excitingly American movie since The Manchurian Candidate. I think that already is quite telling. She basically has this sort of glowing review of this movie. She thinks that it is basically by Americans for Americans. It's such a departure from European film. And yet she still thinks that it's a it's a piece of art. And she thinks that it stands uh, on its own as essentially Amer like a truly American art house film. The first sentence, she's invoking uh, the Manchurian Candidate, which was 
a hugely controversial movie that came out. Aside from all the presidential assassination stuff that it dealt with, it was uh, it was really controversial just because it was uh, dealt with communist uh, brainwashing of American soldiers. And it was another movie like Bonnie and Clyde that was not embraced by critics when it came out. But it's sort of I mean, especially now, it's you know one of the one of the all time classics of the '60s. But uh, but when Manchurian Candidate came out, as you know, like when Bonnie and Clyde came out, they were they were kind of hated by the by the you know, intelligentsia. Bonnie and Clyde was embraced by the people in a way that Manchurian Candidate never was. But my my point is that she's uh, in her first sentence, she's she's being a bit provocative, and she spends the whole review as. Per typical Pauline Kell uh, review, she she battles all the other critics who have been putting it down, either outright calling them by name or uh, alluding to all of their pearl clutching, as it were, about violence and the like. Uh, and she also addresses that, you know, the audience that she saw it with, uh, the vast majority were super engaged. There's a good part of this essay. I have uh, pulled a quote here, which is, quote, Bonnie and Clyde keeps the audience in a kind of eager, nervous imbalance. It holds our attention by throwing our disbelief back in, in our faces. To be put on is to be put on the spot, put on the stage, and made the stooge in a comedy act. People in the audience at Bonnie and Clyde are laughing, demonstrating that they're not stooges, that they appreciate the joke when they catch the first bullet right in the face. And then later in this paragraph, she says, quote, instead of the movie spoof, which tells the audience that it doesn't need to feel or care, that it's all just in fun, that, quote, we were only kidding, Bonnie and Clyde disrupts us with, quote, and you thought we were only kidding. So what she really loved about this, and she goes on and on about, is that she loves the violence in this. She thinks that the inclusion of violence mixed with, and it's sort of a, the genre mixing, basically, that, that, this movie starts out with these sort of bumbling, almost shot like a comedy duo, and they start off pretty innocently dopey, and the movie then has a quick snap in the middle when the first murder happens, almost by accident, uh, that suddenly things start to go wrong, and suddenly the audience is taken on a ride that, uh, like the characters in the film, that they weren't really expecting, that you know everyone thought this would be in fun, you know, good little romp of, of uh, the outlaws having a good time, but they're not really so bad. And then, you know, there's that cold snap and suddenly you realize, oh, maybe these people are just, <laughs> they're just terrible, which uh, Pauline Kell is all for. She talks about how, quote, because you only live once was so well done. And because the audience in the 30s shared this view of the indifference and cruelty of society, there were no protests against the sympathetic ways the outlaws were pictured. And indeed, there was no reason for any. And she says, uh, why the protests? Why are so many people upset? And not just the people who enjoy indignation about Bonnie and Clyde, in which criminals are criminals. Clyde is an ignorant, sly, near psychopath who thinks his crimes are accomplishments. And Bonnie is a bored, restless waitress slut who robs for excitement. And why so many accusations of historical inaccuracy, particularly against a work that is far more accurate historically than most and in which historical accuracy hardly matters anyhow. And so she basically is attacking all of the other critics who are, you know, slamming this as much as they hated it because they were shocked by this sort of celebration of criminality, essentially, which was Bosley Crowther's, uh, you know, big thing. He thought that was just the most disgusting and horrible thing. How dare you uh, encourage people to go out there and, I don't know, rob banks? <laughs> he definitely was not the only one who, who said that, uh, oh, I, we, we can't we can't 
glamorize uh, you know bank robbing this way, then you know everybody's gonna want to do it. We can't uh, we can't glamorize violence. Uh, yeah, he's you know he may have been the the first critic to 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 put a voice to it, but once people started seeing the movie, it was it was very much like oh this movie's gonna corrupt our kids. Uh, you know all the, all the kids are gonna follow suit and they're gonna just turn into violent gangsters like Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, Pauline Kale goes on to deny that movies don't do that for people. In fact, the idea that, that actually showing normal people who are commit violent crimes or, uh, you know, sort of normal people and, uh, and not these, you know, psychopaths may in fact be a deterrent for people. It sort of makes them, you know, think about themselves and how, uh, you know, what, in what situation, might, you know, would I potentially kill somebody or, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I think she, you were saying she likes the violence in this, but it's not that she likes violence in movies. She, she particularly likes how the violence is handled in this movie because it's so shocking because in this, you know, this movie that seems like a lighthearted romp where they're playing, you know, banjo music when, uh, you know, for all the bank robberies, like when, you know, when the first, when the first guy gets shot in the face by, uh, by Clyde Barrow, it's really shocking, and and you know I think that's what what the people who had a strong reaction to this movie thinking, oh, this is you know this this movie's going to be trouble. We've got to do something to ban this movie. That they're responding to just how effective this violence is, and how it's not numbing. It's not for excitement. She compares it to the Dirty Dozen, which came out uh, you know, around the same time as Bonnie and Clyde, which and, she didn't like, which she hated. Yeah, she says. I think the violence in The Dirty Dozen, which isn't a work of art and whose violence offends me personally, should also be legally defensible. Because she's saying that, you know, violence is, is used so effectively in Bonnie and Clyde that you can't say, okay, it's it's okay in Bonnie and Clyde because it's a work of art, but these other movies that are just using it for entertainment, uh, they can't use violence in this way. Whether it's used well or poorly, violence is, uh, has to be shown in movies. Like it's, it's an essential part of the art of film. Yeah, and it's funny because there's also a great part of this uh, review where she really like, straight up attacks people <laughs> as per, again, most uh, Cal reviews. But she says, quote, I would suggest that when a movie so clearly conceived as a new version of a legend is attacked as historically inaccurate, it's because it shakes people a little. She talks about when I asked a 19-year-old boy who was raging against the movie as, quote, a cliche-ridden fraud, if he got so worked up about other movies, he informed me that that, was, that argument was uh, ad hominem. And it is indeed. To ask why people react so angrily to the best movies and have so little negative reaction to poor ones is to imply that they are so unused to the experience of art and movies that they fight it. So she's really this, and I think that's kind of the, really the the point of this entire review is just that she's she's arguing for, as you just said, the importance of portraying the grotesque as it is, and to not try and dress it up, and to not have some movie that has a happy ending or that has gangsters who are you know sweet and lovely and under misunderstood, you know, but they did a bad thing. Oh, but it was justified, you know, to have these characters who are blunt uh, and unjustified. And just kind of doing every living on whims and living day to day as it comes, essentially, and and doing bad things because, you know, why not? Why not do bad things? And that that's exactly, you know, what what she would call art. The fact that there isn't a melodrama, essentially, that makes this truer to real life and therefore an American American art form. Uh, I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, I I might say that Pauline Kael's essay on Bonnie and Clyde is uh 
a more important piece of art than Bonnie and Clyde itself. <laughs> I mean, I love this essay. I've read it a bunch of times and it's always, I mean, Paul and Kayla in general, I, I more often than not disagree with her taste. Right. But I love the way that she's not, like, I mean, she's very opinionated too. She's saying, yeah, this is a good movie. This is not a good movie and you should feel the same way. But at the same time, she's talking about the way that people watch movies. She gets very specific about the responses that, that we have to certain things that are happening on screen that are so enlightening. Like, I just love to read. I can't think of any other critic where I disagree with them so frequently, but I love to read what they're writing about these movies. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes her such a great critic is she... She's so sociological in in a way, like she really understands how people watch movies and and just, you know, between the lines, I always can can read her saying, okay, this is how I saw this movie and this is how I interpret audiences responding to this movie. And it's all very like cause and effect. I, th I think a lot of critics are are opinionated and just say, I think this, I think that, but they never sort of explain like what in the movie has caused them to feel this way and why they have this opinion. And, and she's just the master of getting us to, to understand how we watch movies. You know, if there's one critic that you need to read the, uh, the entire collected works of, it's Pauline Kael, even though I disagree with her opinions quite frequently. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I, I'm kind of similar. I, when, when I agree with her, I very much agree with her. But when I disagree with her, I do always enjoy reading why. Mm -hmm. It's also in part how she was writing because she was always trying to sort of break down the structure of film criticism as she was writing film criticism and to really elevate it to art as she definitely considered it. Uh, and it, it's always interesting because even in this Bonnie and Clyde review, there's like a page where she just goes on about several different films and the whole thing even ends with on a note that feels like it really has nothing to do with the beginning. <laughs> and uh, that's, but that's like sort of the, the genius of it, that it becomes this, this conversation. You can almost, you can feel the other person at the end of this 15-page uh, essay monologue with their arms crossed just waiting to interject. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say, I mean, I, it's funny because I read this review and, well, I, I agree with actually quite a lot of what she has to say and especially that line about, you know, why, why people are reacting angrily to the best movies and, and don't react that way to uh, poor movies. I think that's such a, a great sentence and, and a really interesting point. But I just, I have such a hard time applying that to this film. Like, I will be flat out, I do not like Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> and I hate to be on, on with uh, Bosley Crowther on something. But, like, I just, this movie, and here's the thing, though, is that I, w I would argue, to, to that point specifically, I would argue that people get angry when, when filmmakers fail. It's not always the audience, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, either they're failing in the direction or the casting or like editing or the look of something. The thing the thing that makes people angry is if they when they can see the artifice, you know, if you're if you're walking into a movie theater, you're already accepting suspending your belief. But if something in the movie is so glaringly working against <laughs> that to remind you that they're that you're just like a you're sitting in a theater staring at people on screen that are all like a bunch of people in costumes on a set you know then that's a problem that's the film's problem that's not the audience's problem the audience is coming into this already saying yes except 
unless you're an audience member coming in and watch, watching a movie to see how a movie was made and then analyzing the technique. I mean, that's what the French New Wave did. Like, it made, especially Godard would just, like, he would show you, this is a movie, this is all artifice, and I'm going to show you how this movie was made, and I will show you that, I, you know, I am the author of this movie, and, and my voice will come through, and you'll never for a minute forget that this is a movie you're watching, and all of these are actors on the screen. And, you know, even with that said, you can still go into a Godard movie and forget yourself often and just get absorbed in the characters and the performances. But, but um, I think that's different because, as, as you said, then you're even you're walking into a theater saying, I'm going to listen to what he has to say. You're already expressing an interest. So then if he then turns around and just has like a, a guy farting on screen for an hour... <laughs> You know, that's rude. You you went in there expecting to be spoken to, you know, or taught maybe or learning or something like that. If he turns around and then just gives you a bunch of like rhymes and then, uh, you know, a shot of the, the window for two hours and then you come out angry, I think you, you can be angry about that. That's valid to criticize the filmmaker for that. Whether or not someone else came out and thought, oh, what a genius overhaul of my expectations. You know what I mean? Like uh, mm -hmm. that, which you can also, of course, come out and say. But I mean, for me, it's like it, for specifically for Bonnie and Clyde, I think that anyone who would lash out and say that it was historically inaccurate, that's just I think that's really more their own inarticulate way of saying that they don't buy it. Mm -hmm. There's something to that. I think that that's a failure of the filmmaker. And for me, it was funny because reading this, I, I definitely I didn't have a problem with the violence. Um, I didn't have a problem with it being historically inaccurate. But I had such a problem with which, the, for the record, it's not particularly. No, it's actually. Inaccurate. I mean, that that poem is is a real Bonnie and Clyde poem is, that Bonnie wrote, and it's mostly. I mean, like, there's nothing specifically in here. There really isn't much like to make up. You know, it's it's mm. very uh, people on a road and they have a couple of robberies and they hang out and that's about it. You know, so. I felt like there wasn't even much time to make things up. And, and there's no point where I thought like, eh, this would never happen. Though I will say it, I, I felt that way about looking at Faye Dunaway's entire thing. And she looks like she just stepped out of the 60s. But her eye makeup is definitely very 60s. Her hairstyle, her, yeah. her whole her whole everything, quite frankly. But that's I mean, and that's that's the thing that, that killed me is that I thought that the casting was not good. <laughs> I think Warren Beatty <laughs> is not good, and I think Faye Dunaway is not good in this movie. And I don't want to blame the, either of them because I like them in other things. I don't think that they're bad actors, but they are in this. Number one, that I found them to be just too attractive in a way that, that does not add to the story, even though Pauline Kell very specifically calls out their attractiveness as basically buying you sympathy immediately, which I get. There's something to be said for that, but to me, they just they look so 1960s. It it straight up took me out of the film. They the, they're so 1960s and modern looking that the rest of the film looks like a cheap, like warped time loop. <laughs> well, let me ask you this though, as a response to the popularity of Bonnie and Clyde, this style of dress became hugely popular after 1967 so are, are, are you sure you have your cause and effects in the in the right order what do you i don't know what you're referring to about the style of dress though that 30s style like the beret that that bonnie wears and and just that uh, that 30s style became 
quite popular. Like, I mean, especially in France, but but even in America, it's so many people, you know, began to idolize Bonnie and Clyde and dress like them. And, and it just sort of became a, a cultural touchstone. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll actually quote Kale to back me up on this one for what that's worth. So it would be two against one. Yeah. Um, but she says, quote, that Faye Dunaway has a 60s look anyway, and not just because her eyes are made up in a 60s way and her hair is wrong, but because her personal style and her acting are 60s. And that's really what bothers me. I actually always get a kick out of watching any period dramas from any given decade because you can always pinpoint something that is very of the decade in which it's actually being made that was shoved into this in order to make you feel like you have some connection and that you understand it. You know what I mean? It's like looking at like an old tin type photo and thinking this this doesn't even look like a human anymore because it's so far removed. And then you look at somebody you know photoshopping themselves into a tin type photo and you're like, oh, this I can see it now. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly these people look real again. So there is something, I think that there is just something very 60s about Faye Dunaway that, that annoys me. But, but even more so than that, the thing that kills me about this movie is how they act like children <laughs> it's not what pauline kale seems to think the other critics were angry about it's not that i don't believe that simple people are aren't capable of grand things it's just like it's just the acting it's it's faye dunaway and, and warren Beatty, and i feel like there's no greater example of that than when gene hackman michael pollard and estelle parsons show up as buck cw and blanche because they're all amazing they are all like they all have motivations they all have personalities they all feel super real and recognizable they have these like flawed logic decisions that justify their acts of rebellion in really brilliant and nuanced ways better than freaking faye dunaway's like i'm a bored horny slut who's used to getting her way which i'm like amazed i feel like this is one thing that pauline kell does that sometimes annoys me is that she she sort of accepts that like, well, women can do that. You know what I mean? Like, she never really digs into that stuff. She's pretty critical of Faye Dunaway and, and how there's no depth to her character in this. She is. never really get her, her motivation and she just doesn't seem like a real human being. Like, she's much kinder about Warren Beatty, still critical of his acting ability, but saying that his non-acting style works particularly well for this movie because Clyde is just sort of a fumbling dummy who's just sort of po-faced, psychopath who's who's just kind of living from moment to moment no particular ambition other than doing some crimes and uh you know making some money i mean but the fact that she bonnie's a, a restless waitress slut who robs for excitement like like screw that <laughs> that makes me so angry because that to me is just that's unrealistic bonnie in this movie she's always portrayed as being in in a weird seat of power and it makes me angry because she's in a seat of power from the moment we see her in the opening shot of her being naked in her bedroom writhing around for a man to basically show up and like screw her. And it's like a complete male fantasy of what women possibly could do in their spare time in their bedrooms alone, just sexualizing themselves for like a hidden male gaze that may or may not be looking at them at all time. And then she like stands in front of the window stark naked and she just chooses a man with her body essentially and then just asks him to prove himself worthy of her. And it's just so lame and it's so unrealistic. I don't have a problem with the idea that these were two disenfranchised poor people that essentially had nothing else left in their lives except for finding each other and then just going off and seeing like, screw it, like, let's just rob from banks. I like that kind of stuff, actually. I think that that's really interesting. Like, I really love Gene Hackman in this. I think Buck is so good. And there's so much good dialogue for Buck 
And yet, like, the ball gets so dropped when it comes to Bonnie and Clyde. And Clyde gets a little bit more. You get his whole, like, impotence, sexual trauma thing. But then they kind of wrap that up in a happy bow in the end, which also is really unsatisfying. Which, which Pauline Kale's unsatisfied Paul, yeah, with, Yeah, she's too. really critical of that. What's your opinion? Where are you? Where do you stand? I mean, I, I first saw this movie, you know, 30 years ago, and it, it struck me. I mean, I thought it was an entertaining movie, and, uh, you know, I, I definitely really liked it. My main problem with it at this point is that I've seen it so many times, and it doesn't stand up to rewatching very well. I mean, it's a it's an incredibly shallow movie. There really isn't a whole lot going on with these characters. There's not much subtext at all. the 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 subtext is right there in the text. It's like these you know disenfranchised people who have no other way of making money in the Great Depression. You know, decide to rob some banks and have some fun, and and they become folk heroes because you know all the other people suffering from the depression wish they could do these things that Bonnie and Clyde were doing and and can't, so they're sort of living vicariously through this glamorous couple. And you know, at the time, like it makes sense that you've you've got the two most beautiful people alive in 1967 playing Bonnie and Clyde because that's sort of how they were seen in the 30s. They were this glamorous couple, and that's what people at the time were drawn to. That's why they became these kind of folk heroes and uh i don't know but uh you know beyond that it's just really surfacey entertainment that's my main problem with pauline kale's argument is that she calls it art (laughs) and i think it's technique really way more than it's art like i think that arthur penn the director of this film you know, was watching a lot of French New Wave movies and, you know, he'd already, like Mickey won his previous movie with Warren Beatty was sort of also a much less successful attempt at, at sort of copying the, this French New Wave style. But he... Which, P.S., I really like Mickey won. <laughs> <laughs> Which she totally rags yeah. on in this essay, but... Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, my, my vision of art isn't a movie that you can watch only once and enjoy. Like, I I like a movie with a little bit of depth where you can, you know, each time you see it, you can dig a little deeper into it and and get more out of it. And this is absolutely not that movie. It is what it is. It's it's pure sensation. And uh, it absolutely works the first time you see it. Maybe not for you, but for most people. (laughs) I actually will say that I liked it. This is my second time watching it because I watched it the first time and was like, never again. And then you brought this up, and I was like, ah, oh, man. And uh, <laughs> I actually liked it better on my second viewing. But I think it had a little more to do with just knowing what I was getting into and being a little more forgiving and perhaps trying to see it through Kale's eyes to a degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I can honestly say there's probably not a movie that I've seen more times that I like less than this movie. <laughs> it, <laughs> I mean, I've got, I'm sure I've seen it at least five times, but it's, it's, you know, it's gotta be more than that, especially if you count like pieces of it, I've watched over and over, but do you like rewatching movies in general? I know Pauline Kael never did like, like she no, was she always didn't. a one, one and done kind of person. And I'm actually quite like that myself. I, there's even movies that I super love. I tend to put off. That's why I don't really buy DVDs. That's why I liked renting DVDs, but um, I I don't really rewatch things, and when I do, there's many years in between the last rewatching. Unless like sometimes I'll see something that I really loved, and I'll really want to see it again within a week to a cu- a month or something like that. But after that, it's gonna be like ten years till I watch it again. <laughs> yeah. I I am not much of a rewatcher, and if I really love a movie and I'm thinking, oh, I've got to see that again. 
I always regret it when I watch it again right. too soon. Exactly. Because you you're just too focused on the technique and you see like right through the artifice so easily if you're just you already know it's coming and you're focusing on other things and it just you need time between viewings and I think I mean that was part of Pauline Kael's where she was coming from with all of her reviews is like she's these are my immediate reactions to this film and this is what somebody sitting in the audience will feel when as they're watching this movie and so it's not academic you know the way that she writes about movies it's it's you know she hasn't studied these scenes over and over and watched them carefully to see how they're working like things that particularly work for her I'm, I mean I'm sure she filled notebooks when she was watching movies and you know so she can go into detail in her reviews but she thinks she's very interested in how a movie will hit you when you see it and that's that's part of the reason for her one and done sort of thing but i i mean i i am sort of the same way and it's only since i've gotten older that i've started to rewatch things since we started doing this podcast i've rewatched more things than i ever have before in my <laughs> yeah, life. i was and just I'm, gonna I'm say loving it <laughs> i'm loving it it's all so much stuff that i'm rewatching and and just you know really enjoying the hell out of it part of the re- the my my um avoidance of rewatching is definitely in part like you're saying i like to maintain the feeling of surprise and if I know something too well, and I have a good memory for visuals, especially and in, in for movies typically. So if I can't feel anything the second time around because I saw it, then it's not fun. But the other thing is that there's so many goddamn movies, <laughs> you know, it's like, why would I rewatch this uh, when there's like about 50 other films that were inspired by this or that inspired this film? And as, as my generation would say, got to catch them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... I do. What I really liked about this uh, essay, just going back to agreeing and disagreeing with her at the same time, is that she basically has this glowing review of this movie in the beginning. And then by the end of it, tears everyone and everything apart, like one by one, basically like kind of craps on all of the performers and with a focus on Beatty and and Dunaway. She thinks Arthur Penn is kind of winging it, uh, but she loves the editing. She's enamored with how this movie doles out its violence more than she is with the performances or the script. And she doesn't have anything positive to say about the main players, but the editing is her everything. I, I have to say that, like, I like how this movie doles out its violence myself. I think that the, the it treats violence as real. And she makes this great comparison to that first murder with... Um, it's a cop, I think. He he hangs onto the side of their car. I think he's just he a, gets, a banker. Oh, actually. you're right, all right, all right. It's a banker. Mm-hmm. And he gets shot in the eye and she says this is invoking the, you know, famous uh, Eisenstein battleship Potemkin scene. Odessa steps. Compares that, as I said, the sea change moment in the film. Suddenly everything starts to get a little more serious or a little darker, at least like the joyride becomes just creepier and creepier as it goes on. Except for Gene Wilder. Oh, right. <laughs> but it's also kind of dark and creepy when you think about that scene. And so Gene Wilder kind of, he his car gets stolen and then he chases after them and then he decides let's maybe we should get the cops and he turns around and suddenly they're chasing after him and then they kidnap the couple and it's funny in that they they get like burgers and fries and stuff and they kind of treat them pretty nicely but uh it's also it's really sinister (laughs) (laughs) see i love the six minutes of this movie where it's a gene wilder movie (laughs) (laughs) the rest of it i can take or leave but he you know, he's definitely doing his, uh, I'll tear them apart. And then when he, you know, sort of realizes his, 
his fiance you know, says, well, they're, you know, gangster bank robbers. They're probably dangerous. And he like just totally backtracks. And it's, it's, you know, it's everything you want from Gene Wilder. He's just not in it enough. And that's, that's stuff I can rewatch over and over. It's great comedy, but uh, the rest of the movies, you know, has limited pleasure, I guess. <laughs> well, wait, I want to, I want to talk about that too, but just to finish my point real quick is that I think it's okay. funny to, to watch this movie in, in 2020 for me. The, the violence is nothing special. It's pronounced. It's interesting. It, it's definitely not like your typical big budget Hollywood kind of violence where like you just shoot someone and keep moving. The, all the deaths in this movie feel like deaths. They don't, they don't ever feel glossed over or fun. But in a way, it's like I take it for granted that death is treated in that way and portrayed in that way because it's done so often now aping this film and others that then it, it forces me to focus on what else is happening in the movie and that's all of the weak spots in this movie so i feel like pauline mm-hmm. kale is focusing so specifically on the editing and so specifically on the use of violence and i can 100 percent see why this was like she was basically felt in, in, a, in a position to have to defend this film against People that were, again, clutching pearls and saying, how could they? This is so horrible. I, you know, I come to the cinema to feel good, basically. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, like, yeah, screw that. That's ridiculous. But I don't know. I think this movie is just so weak. And, And so besides Gene Wilder, does this movie ever make you laugh? I don't I can't even think of a single moment in this movie that even made me smile, including Gene Wilder, even though I I appreciated that as being actually a more amusing, lighthearted um, spot, but I, there's nothing funny in this movie to me. I kind of, at this point, I really hate Blanche, the Estelle Parsons character. Like, she's so shrill, and I think that she is a comic character. She's introduced as sort of Buck's, uh, Clyde's brother's wife. She becomes a, a member of the, the Barrow gang because she has no choice, but she's very shocked at how these people are living, especially at first. She gets used to it, but uh, she and Bonnie don't get along at all, and Bonnie's really upset that she's even along with them, and there's a lot of catfighting between the two of them that it doesn't doesn't work at all, like... It's, I think it's supposed to be entertaining, amusing, and it, it's just uh, unpleasant. I find that even more unpleasant than any of the, the actual like blood and, and guts and violence in this movie. It's just these women who are constantly bickering that we're supposed to be entertained by. I mean, it's, I, I like that it's, it's lighthearted. I like that it sort of sets itself up as a comedy, but it doesn't really deliver on that. And that's part of... Pauline Kael goes into that a lot, too. That some woman in the audience, when she uh, when she saw the movie, kept saying, oh, "It's a comedy. It's a comedy." Like trying to like reconcile the fact that she was so shocked by the violence by you know kind of repeating to herself, "But it's but it, it's a comedy, so it, it's okay. I, I, you know, I can't I can't get upset." And then you know by the end of the movie, this woman who was trying to convince herself it was a comedy was just sort of shocked into silence. But right. um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's sort of one of the things that is really masterful about this movie is the tone, is the way that it, it it's this sort of lighthearted story where really like horrible shit happens to regular people. And that's why the violence works so well. That's why when Buck Barrow kills a cop, it's just self-defense. He's trying to keep from getting killed himself. But He's just this regular guy who's never killed anybody before and it's upsetting to him and it's upsetting to the audience because we're not used to having to deal with death 
and murder this seriously, especially in a in a movie that sets itself up as a as a lighthearted comedy. So I think that's what's really effective about this. There doesn't need to be laughs. You go in expecting laughs, and then it like pulls the rug out from under you, and and you and it hits you that much harder. I think Buck's death was the most disturbing one for me, actually. Yeah. You see him sort of writhing around on the ground when he's already been pretty gravely injured and everyone's still sitting there shooting him. And I mean, the ending, you know, Bonnie's and Clyde getting shot for about, you know, with with about 10,000 bullets in the end there is also, <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous overkill. As, as the real Bonnie wrote in her poem, their death is going to be a, a relief for the cops and grief for other people. It's just an unne- unnecessary amount of force that was being thrown at them considering what they were doing and even that they killed anyone seems to be a byproduct of just well what else could we do (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know that's also i think was was disturbing i guess to some 1960s audiences but it's the truth of most crimes quite frankly is that people are are feel like they're in a spot where this is the only possible outcome for them in that moment or they're heated or they're emotional or quite frankly they're not very smart and they don't know what else to do you know, or they're just afraid of getting in trouble which is something that i think you know you look at murders on on television that you know things that are actually happening out there and and it's like oh someone found out that uh they were cheating so i killed them because i i didn't want to deal with the shame of them knowing you know like shit <laughs> what a horrible crappy way to die you know what a what a totally pointless meaningless thing so i mean this movie definitely gets that across quite well and i appreciated that more this time around i think but i just still i just get so angry at how how dumb they are they're not stupid they're just uneducated you know what i mean if you're uneducated maybe you don't make the best decisions but there's typically some kind of logic or at least an emotional logic to them and I don't feel like there is any justification given for anything for Bonnie and Clyde other than, like, they're Bonnie and Clyde. Like, you know the story. And then they just go for it. And, like, I just, I resent that. Like, I don't, I want you to tell me about this. And especially if you're going to give me all these scenes about uh, his inability to perform sexually, but, like, not mention anything about it or imply anything or even give us even a, some a scrap of information that at least the audience can maybe interpret however vaguely even if the characters don't understand it. it it just feels very thrown in there to then be wrapped up with a bow to make you feel something for them later and, and maybe be sympathetic later and i think that's a cop-out i think that sucks and i think that's on arthur Penn. <laughs> Well, and the writing, but... Pauline Kael has it both ways in her essay. She, at the beginning of the essay, she says that when when Clyde is finally able to overcome his impotence, we're uh, you know a sophisticated audience who would enjoy a movie like this aren't you know suckers enough to like actually you know, feel anything emotional there. It's a, you know it's it's kind of a joke. But then later in the essay, she she criticizes the film for for attempting to to have this sort of resolution of his impotence problem at the end. So. I have a sense that she kind of writes her essays the same way she watches a movie. It's like one and done. She's she's she spits it out and is like, "Okay, I said everything I need to say. Send it to the press." And which is, you know, I think works to her advantage and why she's such a pleasure to read. But yeah, definitely not a uh, an introduction, uh, thesis, uh, you know, and then conclusion sort of sort of essay writer. She's just sort of talking about what's on her mind, and I think it's it's why it's so easy to connect to. Her writing. I mean, I do, I do think that there is a severe lack of nuance in a lot of film criticism, uh, in general. You know, I get really annoyed when people think like 
this is the best movie ever, period. And if you criticize anything about this movie, then you're an asshole and whatever, the dog pile of the internet. Or, you know, God forbid you love a movie and yet you think maybe that the main performance is flawed. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many reasons to love a movie. And I think I love her breakdown of this just to point out that she didn't like the main actors. She kind of thinks Arthur Penn's a bit of a hack. And yet the editing and, like, the parts of the script for her were just enough for this to be elevated to, like, greatest film, go see it. And that's really great, I actually. I, I really like stuff like that because that's how I see things myself. Like, I've never... You can ask me what my favorite film is. Don't ask me that. But, like, anything that I can point to as my one of my favorite movies is also a film I can point out the flaws in. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, Kale loves to do that, too. Yeah, I mean, two, two, two points about Kale that you've, you've kind of brought up that I want to mention is that she's critical of Arthur Penn. She, she loves his, uh, his first film, the, uh, the Billy the Kid Western with Paul Newman called The Left-Handed Gun, and says that he doesn't have a distinctive style. He's, there's not anything he's trying to say in his movies, and there's no reason to go see a movie just because Arthur Penn directed it. I mean, that, that, that sort of speaks to the other most famous thing about Pauline Kael is that she was against the auteur theory. Like right. She and Andrew Saris you know, had a long-running battle where Andrew Saris was sort of picking up on what the what the new wave the Kai de cinema and critics were saying about you know watching films for the director as an author and and sort of following their themes from movie to movie and watching their techniques and how they they evolve and that the voice in the movie is the director's voice and Pauline Kael is very much against this idea and this essay is a I mean, she she definitely is very uh, complimentary of Dee Dee Allen the editor's skills. And it's sort of become sort of this accepted thing that the editing in Bonnie and Clyde is brilliant. It's the you know best editing in any movie ever, and I think it's all based on the fact that you know Pauline Kael throws that into the you know towards the end of her essay. And you watch the movie. I've seen this movie enough times that I it's hard for me to watch it for content anymore. I am watching like the, things like the editing, and it's not. There's a lot of bad editing in this movie. <laughs> there, there's there's some brilliant editing, and the, and the examples that Paul and Kale points out where um, you know the quick cut between where where Bonnie and Clyde connect eyes before they you know get riddled with bullets at the end is 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 really brilliant. Like a, and some of the editing is really impressive in this movie, but it's definitely not a like across the board best edited movie ever right. like there's a lot of some of it is continuity problems but you know things that an editor more focused on that sort of thing would be able to take care of pretty easily and they aren't taken care of in this movie but uh kale is also really complimentary of the screenwriters for this movie he says there you know a lot of great lines that that arthur penn will you know occasionally make good use of but other times doesn't trust the great dialogue and will throw in these stylistic flourishes that are kind of unnecessary like she's especially critical of the of the moment where bonnie goes to to have a reunion with her uh, with her mother and and her family and it's all in this, this sort of hazy nostalgia sort of um very stylized scene that uh, that feels very different than the rest of the movie and i i i love that scene uh, pauline kale kind of hates it and says that it's it, you know typical of of Arthur Penn making bad directorial <laughs> decisions i mean she sort of goes out of her way in this essay to to point out all of the the people involved in this film who should have a lot of credit for their work other than the the director whereas a lot of film criticism especially you know a, a lot of it is just for convenience sake it's easier to 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 just assign 
a single author to a movie um, than to try and like go through and pick out, you know, who's responsible for what. But it's she's I think she's already sort of invested in this anti-autourist stance. And that's, you know, that's part of what she's addressing in this essay is that she she wants to make sure that that all the people who worked on this film get the credit they deserve. For sure. So what, what's your favorite scene in the in this movie? The G, the Gene Wilder one or something else? Oh well, yeah. I mean, the Gene Wilder one is the one that gives me the most pleasure rewatching this movie. But uh, I think that first robbery where they've just picked up Michael J. Pollard and uh, he's he's become the first member of the of the Barrow Gang after after Bonnie and uh, he's he's their driver and he finds a spot to pull into in front of the bank. And he can't get out of that spot that he's pulled into fast enough. And, and that's sort of responsible for the first murder that happens in this movie. And I think that scene is constructed really amazingly well. It's sort of the first scene that, that jumps out at me when I think of the movie. It's, it's just something really impressive about this thing. It's just so tightly edited. And it's the scene that Pauline Kaler refers to with the with the Odessa Steps from uh, Battleship Potemkin, where the... Where the the banker gets shot through the glasses, and and it's it's a really shocking scene of violence. It still uses that banjo score, that like oh here's you know here's an action a fun action scene, but it really underscores how sort of horrific what's actually happening is. I mean, it sort of adds to the horror in a way, and and I think it's a good example of why people were made uncomfortable by this movie and didn't know how to take it as this sort of tightly cut suspenseful action scene with like a moment of murder and horror that is scored with this like playful banjo score and it's like what 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 the hell is going on here what is this movie what is it trying to do and i i I think it's brilliant how what about you what scene stands out for you that's the exact scene (laughs) (laughs) it's funny i mean like i i agree with you but that's you know it's it's also a great example of what the movie was lacking in a way cw they bring him in you know after recruiting him from a gas station and Basically, they recruit him because he like has a tattoo and has a rap sheet, right? He's he's been away, and and they're like, you know, hey, dare you to rob this and come with us? And he's like, yeah, screw it. Already in more way more justification than Bonnie and Clyde ever get. And then they tell him to wait in the car as they go in there and, and rob a bank. And of course, you know, this is someone who just he works in a gas station. He tells like wait wait in the car. You can see the logic in his head going. Well, I guess I'll park. You know, like, like, what do you, what, what, what else would he do? Just idle the car? Like, that doesn't make sense. He would, you know, I'll go just go park it, which of course ends up being, as you said, this terrible decision, obviously, especially in these old 1930s cars that have no power steering and a terrible turn radius. And, uh, you know, he gets stuck uh, in there. Number one, they run out of the bank, uh, like, where the fuck's the car? And then when they finally find him, he can't get out of his parallel parking spot. Uh, fast enough which is of course when the entire town starts to descend on this car and it gets really heated and i just i love that because it has a logic to it that again isn't the right decision and it isn't the smart decision but it's it's a logical decision that's what this movie just needed more of for me i mean like it's just it it wasn't just well i was bored and horny so i decided to do this you know like i just it's not a reason for me like i just don't get it but that scene definitely is is easily the best scene in the whole film besides a couple of of smaller moments throughout the movie and and typically moments of violence that again are well done and effective that's definitely the best constructed and the in the easily the 
the most iconic uh, scene of the film for me, for sure. Yeah. Um, this movie is is worth a watch, though, wouldn't you say? Like, you've got to see this movie at least once in your life, right? Honestly, like, like I would skip this movie. Yet, at the same time, <laughs> I would I would recommend you not skip it because it's been so influential. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's it's worth watching in as far as you're going to see where things come from. You're going to see Gene Hackman doing a great job. <laughs> I mean, it does have a good energy. <laughs> For all of its flaws, it, it, it is fairly quick. Though I will admit that rewatching this, I realized I, I blacked out the entire second half of this film. I forgot all of the stuff about the, her family and... and like the second house that they go to, I like completely blacked the whole thing out. I think it was just so pissed in the movie. <laughs> but um, it's like I don't know. It's like I want to say it's not bad, but I clearly, I clearly didn't like it. So I don't know. I, it's you. You should definitely see it if you have an interest in it. I think that, as you said earlier, though, you should definitely read Pauline Kell's uh, full review. It is quite long, but it is worth it, and it's definitely worth hearing her sort of explain it, as you mentioned. I think I think she deserves rightfully she deserves her spot whether or not again if you agree with anything she says <laughs> yeah and she's often comes off as kind of a bully in her writing which I kind of you know chuckle at but I feel bad for other critics who'd have to go up against her because she uh she's just so like if you don't think the way I do you're an idiot sort of attitude right. which is fun to read, but it's it's also you know really abrasive, especially if you feel strongly about a movie uh, in a different way than uh, than Pauline Kael does. But uh, but yeah, I think it was sort of essential for us to to deal with Bonnie and Clyde uh, in particular uh, for Cinema Sixty because it's such a watershed movie. There's before Bonnie and Clyde, and there's after Bonnie and Clyde, and it's sort of something we haven't really addressed yet on the series is that they're really two sixties and this movie kind of marks where the kids took over in a way where the younger generation in America, I'm speaking of course, but where the, where the younger generation really changed the way movies were made. Nothing was the same after this movie really. And yeah, and the, and the, we had to talk about it in relation to the Pauline Kael episode because she is talking so specifically about audiences in the sixties and how they watched this movie and how this movie was such a game changer. So if you care about this period in movies at all, you I imagine you've already seen Bonnie and Clyde, but if you haven't read the Caleb essay, you've got to. Yeah, this is uh, Barton Jenna just sort of ticking this essential aspect of 60s cinema off our list of things that we just have to had to get out of the way. You know, we did our James Bond and we've done our, our Bonnie and Clyde and and uh, you know there there are several other things that that just you can't talk about the '60s without dealing with, and we'll we'll get to those very soon, I promise. If for nothing else, you should read this for her definition of America. <laughs> <laughs> on top of everything Bart just said, which was one hundred percent correct, don't listen to me. You should listen to Bart on this, and probably, and you should watch this movie and definitely read this essay. But also read this essay just for how she defines America as, in this movie, she says, quote, Bonnie and Clyde needs violence. Violence is its meaning. And then later on, she says, nobody in the movie gets pleasure from violence. And I think that that's also quite telling, especially as we're moving into the late 60s here, that the, the most American film is about violence and about being very unhappy with violence. <laughs> I think it's actually it's a bit of a, you know, time capsule in a way. Well, yeah, I mean, 
it's definitely the end of an era. It's at this point in history, the you know cowboy west, the western hero, where an eye for an eye is going out of fashion. That uh, Clint Eastwood in the spaghetti westerns kind of gave another aspect to this, where they turn the the western hero into psychopaths, but the sort of noble western hero, the John Waynes, the Gary Coopers, or, or or whatever, who respond with violence because that's what's necessary. Is you know especially in this era of, of Vietnam and and you know all the protests that were going on is. This, this country was rethinking violence in a lot of ways, and this movie deals with violence in a, in a very different way than, than, you know, all the other American, the violent American movies that came before it. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about Pauline Kael, you know, there's a documentary that came out last year called What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kael, which uh, I think you can rent now, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but you can, you can, you can see it. All right, well... With that, we bid you farewell as uh, we walk out of the studio at Cinema 60 headquarters here and get uh, riddled with bullets, right? Yeah, yeah, to a, to a banjo score. <laughs> See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.